Usually, when someone calls you a real piece of work, it's not a compliment. We say such things about those we think are odd or whose behavior is hard to understand. But in a famous soliloquy, Shakespeare's Hamlet declares, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculties! In form and moving, how express and admirable! In action, how like an angel! In apprehension, how like a god! Yet Hamlet's opinion of humanity is mixed. He calls human beings the beauty of the world and the paragon of animals. But he also asks, what is this quintessence of dust? These days, it's common to treat human beings as if they were only high-functioning animals. Humans are indeed creatures, but the Bible teaches that we are much more. According to Genesis 1, human beings were the pinnacle of God's creative work. Not only were they the last creatures made, but they were created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Humans were not the only sentient beings that God created. He also created the angels who dwell with him in heaven. Likewise, the book of Genesis says that animals and humans have the breath of life in them and that this life comes from God. According to the psalmist, God made humans a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Yet of all God's creatures, it is only human beings that Scripture says are made in God's image. What is this image? Not everyone has the same understanding of what this phrase means. Many early Christian theologians understood the divine image to be the power to reason. Others linked the idea of the divine image with various human faculties, like spirituality or immortality. In the Genesis account, humanity's creation in God's image sets the stage for the divine mandate to increase in number, fill and subdue the earth, and to rule over the other creatures God has made. However we understand God's image, it at least means that God made us in his likeness to represent his interests in the world. To do this, he created humanity to be male and female. Each complements the other as they share the same divine calling. Both reflect the divine image equally. The task of dominion is granted to both alike. But the domain in which they exercise dominion belongs to God. The Bible's account of human origins takes a sharp turn in the third chapter of Genesis, which describes the fall of humanity into sin through disobedience. The primary agent in this tragic turn of events was Satan, who took the form of a serpent and tempted Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden tree. The entrance of sin fundamentally changed humanity's relation to God and to each other. The word the Bible uses to describe its primary consequence is death. We think of death as the cessation of physical life. It is this, but it is also, first and foremost, a state of alienation from God. Those who are dead in sin are God's enemies. Just as we tend to be limited in our thinking about death, we are also narrow in our view of sin. 
The popular measure used to determine what constitutes sin is movable. This incomplete view reduces many of the things we used to call sins to matters of bad taste or cultural insensitivity. Contemporary culture has removed many of the thoughts and practices that we used to call sins from the category of sin altogether. They're called choices, alternative lifestyles, or simply mistakes. The fatal flaw in these views is their exclusion of God. Where there is no God, there is no sin. That same flaw has corrupted our notion of virtue. Where there is no God, there can be no virtue or goodness either. There are only privately or commonly held standards. What renders an action a sin is that it is ultimately committed against God. David understood this. In Psalm 51, verse 4, he declared, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is an astonishing statement, given the events that prompted it. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He arranged the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, after he learned that she had become pregnant. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga Jr. explains, All sin has first, and finally, a Godward force. What then are we to do about the human problem of sin? Some people treat sin the same way they do high cholesterol. They know that if they ignore it, things will go badly. But they hope that if they take certain basic measures, it can be kept under control. Others think that the solution is a matter of discipline. Those who treat sin as if it were a disease think it can be cured through treatment. Those who see sin as a lack of discipline believe it can be eliminated with education and training. But the Bible views sin differently. Sin is more than a disease or a failure of discipline. It is a condition of guilt and a deeply ingrained moral bent. Ever since Adam, human beings have been wired for sin. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul explains that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. God's reason for binding the rest of humanity to Adam's one act of disobedience was to open the door of forgiveness through the one man, Jesus Christ. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, the apostle goes on to observe, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Just as our union with Adam in his sin had a profound effect on the human condition, union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection also affects us. Adam introduced the dynamic of sin into human nature with its own guilt and alienation. Jesus replaces this guilt with his righteousness and through the power of the Holy Spirit enables those who are his to act out that righteousness in their daily lives. The word the Bible uses to describe this new relationship is justified. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 explain, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God.
Some have tried to explain justification by saying that it makes us just as if we had never sinned. Although this is a good start, it doesn't go far enough. Christ's death on the cross does indeed take away our sin, rendering us guiltless in the eyes of God. But the work of Christ does more than restore us to the state that Adam was in before he sinned. Because Jesus obeyed God perfectly as our substitute, his righteousness is also credited to us. It is not only just as if I had never sinned, but also just as if I had perfectly obeyed. How should we think about the human condition? The Bible tells us who and what we are. Humans are more than complex animals. They are creatures made in God's image with a physical and spiritual nature and were created to act as his representatives in the world. Humans are also deeply flawed by what the Bible calls sin. This is both a condition of guilt and a natural inclination that alienates us from God and one another. All the ills we see in the world today can ultimately be traced to the problem of sin. The hope of the Christian, where sin is concerned, is Jesus Christ. He is God's answer for sin. Christ's death paid the price for all our sin. Christ's obedience earned our righteousness. His resurrection has made us a new creation. All those who are in Jesus Christ exchange death for life. And it is only because Christ has given us new life that we can live a new life. Music